Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by hearing directly from industry leaders working out there in the world today. They tell us about their successes and their failures, their interesting applications and case studies. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here today, for tuning in to another great episode. Just before getting started with the episode, I wanted to ask if you can please uh, send me your favorite quote from today's episode, either by email or LinkedIn or Twitter, Facebook, etc. Send me your favorite quote from today. And if you can, please share the podcast with a friend. If you like today's episode or if you like some of the episodes in the past, please tell a friend. And the only other thing is that now at the bottom of the show notes in your podcast app, your podcast player, at the bottom of the show notes, there is a link to send in questions, comments, feedback, anything you want as a voicemail. So I would love to hear what you think of the podcast, if you think we should cover any other topics, if you have any feedback, questions, comments, anything at all please send them through. So today we have Dr. Gregory Hill. He's the global head of analytics at Brightstar based in Melbourne, Australia. And he is also a member of the industry advisory board at the Center for Business Analytics in Melbourne Business School. He has a really interesting career and has worked in, in consulting for the last 10 years or so. Without further ado, here is the interview with Dr. Gregory Hill. Hi, this is Felipe. I'm sitting here with Gregory. How are you doing today, mate? Doing very well. Thanks for inviting me on your show. Uh, mate, thank you so much for making the time. I've been looking forward to having a chat with you, so I'm glad we get the time now. Tell me, how did you get started in data? What was it that pulled you into this world? Sure. Well, I started out many years ago. I caught the tail end of the original dot-com boom. So I started my career at Telstra as an engineer there. And I was always interested in the mathematical aspects of engineering. And so when I did my undergraduate degree in electrical engineering, communications engineering at Melbourne University, they teach a very theoretical course. So I only ever picked up the soldering iron in the fifth year of my studies ah. as a lab demonstrator for the first year. So it was a very theoretical approach. Those elements of it were really interesting to me. I've always been interested in the idea of mathematical models and how, how they relate to the real world. So when I started in the graduate program at Telstra, I, I worked across a few different areas like e-commerce and so on. Wow. I found my home in an area that was um, spun off from Telstra's research labs, which was around data mining. And around 2000, 2001, that's what people were referring to as what we now know as data science. Excellent. Wow. And had you come across it before you had that role in data mining? No, I, I guess I was aware that there was a lot of theoretical work being done, but I wasn't sure that how it would be applied in industry. I guess there were sort of uh, industrial mathematicians that sometimes came to the university and talked about what they did, but it seemed to be very big, complicated projects around scheduling of like mining systems or complicated design problems for aircrafts and things, which seemed very um, removed from what I could relate to. So it's only when I started at Telstra that I could see that there were problems and uh, opportunities to do mathematical modeling at a scale that I could kind of get my head around. Yeah, nice. And how has your career looked like since then to now? Sure. So I spent a couple of years working in what was then online business intelligence. So for the first time, we were starting to get data on how 
customers were using different websites. And so there was an opportunity to do some what we now call dashboarding, kind of business intelligence work, but also some modeling around trying to do some forecasting and propensity type work. Mm -hmm. So I enjoyed that. And what I learned from that time was that as interesting as the mathematical models are, the real challenges for putting these things into practice lie in the organizational and people elements of it. One thing that I'm doing a degree in computer science and another degree in electrical engineering doesn't teach you to do is how to think about organizational challenges and individuals and their, their motivations and incentives. So I, I wanted to go back to university and, and do a PhD because I was yeah. interested in research. And it was kind of a, an itch that I had to scratch at some point in my career. And I thought the dot-com bubbles burst. This is a good time to take a few years off. And rather than go back and do more studies in, in engineering or applied maths, I wanted to do something with a bit more of a qualitative bent to it. Mm -hmm. So I chose to do one in an area of information systems that was really targeting information economics. Nice. So there was a big gap of my knowledge around economic models, microeconomics, and uh, theories around supply and demand and price and how all that sort of stuff works. So I wanted to get an understanding of that in the context of information, and yeah. that's we're in the information age, but also as a way to kind of backfill some of my, my knowledge gaps around business and organizations and the profit motive and how these things sort of work. So I went and did a, so a degree or a PhD that touched on some of the qualitative aspects as well. So I did field work. I was going out and interviewing executives in some of our larger banks here, yeah. um, some of our larger publicly listed companies, government agencies, to try and understand how they use data and how they value it. How do you build a business case to go and fix issues with data? That was sort of the thrust of the PhD research. Interesting. Yeah. And what was the specific topic that you were looking at? So it was around coming up with an economic framework for yeah. valuing improvements to customer data quality. Huh. So the one of the main ways that you consume data is through yeah. decision processes. So I was really looking at mostly CRM type processes, yeah. customer relationship management, segmentation and scoring and those sorts of things. And what happens in large organizations at the time and, and still today is that there'll be a large data set that will be collected. You know, data is collected for some other reason, such as billing the customer. But then you want to come along and do some other things with it. So it might be uh, some segmentation tasks or credit scoring, whatever it might be. And you have these different users of the data often having quite different requirements about what particular fields or customer sets are, are of particular interest to them. But the data quality is often quite poor. And so the question comes, well, we need to invest in fixing it up, but how do we pay for this? What's the right amount of dollars to put into it? And so the real challenge is that if you go and talk to the marketing department, they'll say, well, you know, we're, we're fine with the data how it is because they know that the credit scoring people are going to put their hand in their pocket and fund it out of their budget. Yes. So you have this kind of, um, standoff where no one department wants to put their hand up <laughs> and fund all of the data because they believe that the other ones will do it and they'll just kind of free ride on it. And this is a very common economic kind of problem. And so my thesis was suggesting yeah. a way to use Shannon's information theory, mm -hmm. which is a kind of a mathematical theory that came out of just after World War II, that we can use that to quantify the information for a particular decision process and then have a, an objective and fair way for the different departments to agree how to split the cost up of going and remediating uh, the data quality problems. 
Yeah, How is it? it was good fun times. Um, I have to say that uh, I haven't seen the framework being widely adopted yet. I think that yeah. uh, there's still some organizational challenges as well with trying to explain this particular formula. I think anything with logarithms in it starts to get people a little bit uh, concerned. Probably the area that would that I fell down on was the user acceptance of understanding, okay, are we really going to come and agree to divide millions of dollars worth of project budgets up because of this uh, logarithm formula? Oh, you're a good man. But that was really interesting to lean into the qualitative side and the, not entirely like the softer side because you did have the decision-making component because at least in my mind, when I think of microeconomics, I think of decision-making for managers. That's sort of the realm that microeconomics plays a large part in to how people make decisions. Sure. Is that fair? Yeah, that's right. So it really is around that managerial decision-making mm. and um, having a kind of a model for how that should work in theory is a really useful starting point, even if in real life it doesn't actually play out that way. But as you kind of get more into economics and particularly things like behavioral economics, mm starts to become more realistic and take into account people's inherent biases and limitations. So in, in the context of my research, I used a, a framework around bounded rationality from Herbert Simon. So he kind of explains that there are, people are kind of rational up to a point, and then they start to make uh, simplifying assumptions just to deal with the complexity. Yes, definitely. And how was that transition from working and having a bit of experience in industry to then going into a PhD in an area that was not very closely related to your previous studies. Yeah. So there would have been that gap of knowledge as you go into the qualitative side and the economics. How, how did you deal with that gap? It was a, a bit of a cultural shift. For sure. So the information systems department at Melbourne University at the time was part of the science faculty. Mm -hmm. And so I'd left the computer science department, which strangely was part of the engineering faculty. So I think there's a little bit of a cultural divide there as well in that the information systems department at that time was nearly all overseas students. Yep. So there were a lot fewer Australian local students in the program as well. Yeah, it was a kind of a, a shift as well in terms of the approach to knowledge in the engineering disciplines that I'd undertaken. Again, it was basically five years of applied mathematics. Mm. So very much driven by formal proofs, maybe some stuff around simulations. That's kind of how you acquire knowledge. In that qualitative world, there is a much broader set. So there's experiments, there's focus groups, there's interviews, there's uh, more emphasis on scholarship and, and researching previous theories and frameworks. So it was, from a research methods point of view, it was, it was a real eye-opener. And I certainly learned a lot that I've personally used a lot more in my work in industry, where things around research, around um, surveys and interviewing people is much more prevalent than doing a, a formal mathematical proof. That's fantastic. And then once you did the PhD, what would you do next? I've been a long time doing my PhD. I really enjoyed it. It was a, as I like to remind people, it's not a project, it's a lifestyle. And so when I was... What, um, what do you mean by that? So, well, it doesn't really have a, a beginning and a middle and an end. It's yeah. just something that you do in your life for a while. And then after a while, you decide to do something else in your life. So you finish off your thesis. That was kind of my experience of it. And so I wasn't in and out in three years by any stretch. I was doing some consulting work through some friends' businesses that I knew, kind of in the, that business intelligence type world. I was doing a lot of teaching and lecturing and uh, tutoring, and marking exams, all those sort of things which are... I guess I call that being an apprentice academic. It's, it's a very medieval institution um, doing a PhD. So you have this kind of apprentice 
master relationship and you have to learn how to write lecture notes. There's no course for that. You have to learn how to mark exams. You have, you know, you do it by apprenticeship. So I did that. And then I was clear to me towards the end that I didn't want to be an academic and that I wanted to get back into industry. Why was that? I think I just realized that there was too much going on in the world, in my sphere at least, that I just wanted to kind of get involved with. So I wanted to go out and engage with organizations and build teams and build products and actually get my sleeves rolled up and start to have a, an impact rather than, I guess, being a, an observer from the sidelines. Interesting. And is that something that you could have done or maybe the question is, you didn't feel that you could have done that through the consulting side that you sort of doing while you were doing the PhD? Not really. It was yeah. more for me, because I mean, I'm talking about someone who's 26 years old or yeah. something. It was more doing small pieces of work, not really having a big piece to do, a big mm-hmm. sort of project to take on. So it kind of was quite limited. So yeah. in order to, I think, do that model of being an academic who does some consulting on the side, I think you have to have some very deep expertise in a very, very narrow field. So maybe um, some applications around uh, cryptography or something like that might be where that would work. But I couldn't really see a path for that sort of uh, modeling work that I was really interested in. Fair enough. And then so you... Yeah, so then I was uh, I was back in the market looking for yeah. a role. I chose the timing really well. This was around the time of the um, global financial collapse that I decided to re-enter the market. I think I may have started at Bright Star like within a month of Lehman Brothers going down. So um, before or after? Just before. Yeah. So yeah, it, things were looking a bit shaky for the sort of six months leading up to it. And then I think the the hammer fell. And yeah, I'd have to check the timelines, but it was definitely right in the midst of the GFC that I was uh, out there chopping my CV around. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah, I definitely remember those times. (laughs) Yeah, tough times. uh, Yeah, and everyone everyone was nervous. And um, it was definitely tough times. And then what attracted you to the opportunity at Brightstar? So I wanted to get in on the ground floor. That was kind of my idea. I didn't want to be a small cog in a very big machine. So obviously the large banks and some of the other insurance institutions and um, the consulting firms had at that time, they were the place where the quants went, the data mining people, the quants, that sort of work was already there. But for me, I was more interested in uh, having an opportunity to look with kind of fresh eyes at a, at a different sort of an industry yeah. and say, okay, I've got this toolkit, all yeah. these different sorts of techniques that I've been learning, decision trees and neural nets and support vector machines and whatever else, uh, association rule mining techniques. Where's something relatively fresh that I can be the sort of first person to kind of go after, the sort of virgin snow concept? Yes. So I wasn't really going to come up with a better way to do a decision tree, but I thought I could be the first person to realize that this particular problem would really lend itself to having some decision tree built around it. Great strategy. Great thinking. Where did that idea come from? Uh, And and I ask because typically people, people want to go to, I think the majority of people want to go to the established places and they see that they, there might be some prestige in a place that is up and running on the specialty. They have a track record. I actually love your approach. The thinking behind it, how did you come to that? Well, if I can be really frank, it was yeah. a combination of arrogance and laziness. <laughs> so, 
So I had this newly minted PhD and I was sure that I could put it to use in some industrial application. And yeah, why not? Right? I mean, they have data, they, they make decisions, they surely need an algorithm right? yes. that sort of follows. I'd also had some fairly confronting interviews with um, one of the um, well-known management consulting firms. Yep. And I'll just tell you a little anecdote about that. So this is someone who's coming off what I call the PhD lifestyle. So I was able to cultivate a lot of other interests in my life as part of my PhD over that lengthy period. And I was interviewing with uh, one of these consulting firms and they're explaining about how they rarely work on weekends, which was good for me to hear. And I said, oh, oh okay, so how many are we talking about? And then there was a peer interview and the guy said, well, we've worked three out of the last four. And I said, that sounds like a lot. And he said, yeah, we're going through a bit of a rough patch, but normally it's like half that, which still sounded like a lot of weekends <laughs> to me. And I asked them, um, so how do you decide uh, whether or not to work on the weekend? Mm. And he said, well, we all just get together at about five o'clock on Friday and we have a look at the project and how it's going. And then we just take a vote. And I said, um, oh, so it's an, it's an open vote. It's not a hidden piece of paper thing. No, no, we all just put our hands up. Is the manager in the room? Yep. <laughs> okay, I think I see what's going on here. This is probably not for me then. So that kind of ruled out a fairly big chunk of the employment market um, yes. if you've got someone with a background like that. So that was kind of the laziness side of it to sort of think, okay, I think I can strike out and find some new territory rather than following a well-beaten path. Great. I think it's fantastic. And how was it coming into a ground floor? Yeah, look, it was a very um, fast-growing period in, yeah. in the company's history around that time. So every week I'd come to work, there'd be another couple of new faces in the building. And so it was a really exciting time, lots of rapid growth and a lot of really interesting people coming in with um, all sorts of uh, eclectic backgrounds, which is what I really enjoy. I love working with um, people from astrophysics or microbiologists or um people who are touring in a hip-hop band, you know, all these sorts of different kind of backgrounds coming together. That was what I really remember from that, that first year or two. So it was, it was really exciting. That's fantastic. And had the company been established recently or was the sort of data mining team established at that time? Yeah, the uh, company would, was probably about 10 years old at that time, yep. roughly, but mm -hmm. it was um, relatively new to Australia. And so we'd just uh, been awarded a, a large contract with Telstra to do work around their supply chain and product management and, and retail business. And so there was a lot of growth around building teams to support that. And part of that was what was actually uh, referred to as business intelligence yes. um, was the job title at the time. It's what we would call data science now. So it wasn't really around the reporting. It was around trying to generate answers to questions with all of this data that we had collected. Great. Yeah, I remember at the time, definitely, yeah. Telstra had a big sort of contractor and consulting pool and they were getting a lot of work to be done outsourced. Um, it was very interesting. Also, I also worked at a company around that time that we were doing a lot of work for Telstra around revenue assurance at the oh, time. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, which is, which is interesting. So looking at billing and provisioning mm. of services, mismatches and types of analysis. So what type of problems did you start looking into and what type of applications? Sure. So it was mostly looking at the four P's of marketing. So again, I had an opportunity to learn something new, which they don't teach mm. you in engineering school, which is um, what are the four P's of marketing? And it turns out that in business, that's actually quite a, a useful lens to think about these sorts of commercial problems. So mostly what I was part of a team that was looking at product lifecycle management 
and portfolio optimization for Telstra's device business. So their handset category, their tablets, accessories. So back in those days, the question, you know, Nokia was the dominant brand. Um, That's right. Listeners today may find that hard to imagine, but uh, there was a time when half of the sales were Nokia and no one knew about Apple. So we would ask questions like, um, how many Samsung phones should there be in the range? What's this new BlackBerry thing that people are getting excited about? Uh, should we just have that in the enterprise portfolio or consumers going to want to have that as well? Mm-hmm. And we also looked at questions around what products would work well in what channels. So how many Blackberries are you going to sell through um, Coles, a supermarket channel, for example, versus uh, having some lower end Sony Ericsson's, but maybe you should offer a lot of different color variety if it's going to appeal to those kinds of customers. So those are the kinds of questions that we were looking to answer. And previously, that type of merchandising sort of decision making was done by gut feel. And you'd have people who worked in the industry for a long time. Maybe they were managing stores or they'd previously been managing stores and they had their finger on the pulse, Mm. at least so they thought. So having a data-driven approach to that saying, well, we can see that customers are coming in and buying this thing and customers who are on these types of plans and are spending this amount of money a month Maybe we should give them a little bit more choice because they're worth more to us. So it was a kind of a different way of thinking about some of those assortment and merchandising type decisions. And how is that transition either for the company or for the teams that you're working with? Because obviously this is a common scenario in this, and that's why I'm asking the questions in the sense of having a, a status quo where decisions are being made by experience and gut instinct and then transitioning to the data-driven approach. Mm. And there's always a bit of hurdles, a bit of resistance, sure. uh, usually a bit of a roller coaster ride getting from A to B in terms of the experience to the data driven decision making. How was that for you? Yeah, it was a, a big learning curve mm. for how to do this. I found that having a point of common contact would help. And so at that time, Bryce, I had a lot of industry veterans, people with a lot of experience who were well known in the industry. Mm. And so I'd bring them along to the meetings. And when the client would express surprise about something, that person was sort of like a chaperone would say, yeah, I was surprised too. But when we go and have a look at the data, it's kind of incontrovertible that that's what's going on. I also learned something nice. around that time, which has stood me in good stead ever since, which is um, when you're presenting some insights to a client or, you know, an internal stakeholder, you don't just come out straight off the bat with the big, wow, you were wrong, myth busted (laughs) kind of statement. You have to build up to it. So you need to show people things that confirms what they already know as a way to build a certain level of credibility. So once they start nodding along, you can't just do that the whole meeting because yeah. otherwise they'll think, why did I come here? Yes. I just told me things I already know. So you've got to get the ratio right. But I would say about the first 25% should be nodding along. And then you come out with the surprise that they weren't expecting or as challenges some of their assumptions. And then that'll be the focus of the meeting. And then you close it off with something that they already knew. So ideally, you might recommend some next steps yeah. that they've already said, we should go and do this. And then yeah. the slide comes up where you've said exactly the same thing. And then they can feel good about themselves. Ah, interesting. It's counterintuitive to think about it in that way, to start off with things that they would know, but it makes sense that that confirmation allows for the relationship to build because it creates that trust. How did you get to that point of working out? Uh, Trial and error, really. I just made a few mistakes. You know, I thought, uh, look, I've only got 20 minutes with this senior person. I'd really better get the point across quickly. And if that's what you lead with, Mm. they switch off. 
they don't believe your data. They think you either you're a crackpot or you're, you're looking at the wrong database or you've somehow made a mistake somewhere in there. And then the shutters come down. In those days, the BlackBerry comes out <laughs> and they start um, doing their emails on it. And you know you've lost them at that point. Exactly right. Exactly right. Very, very interesting. And what other types of problems or, or applications have you seen in your time here? Well, it's been a long time. I'm over 10 years now in the company. So Very nice. um, I was started around the, in and around the Telstra business. And at that time, we were expanding that model into other parts of Asia Pacific. So mm -hmm. I worked for a few years in what we call APAC regional roles. So working with doing very similar stuff with um, Telecom New Zealand, now Spark at the time, CSL up in Hong Kong and a few other places. But essentially, it was very similar sorts of work. Around that time, I also became the business owner of our data warehouse, which is um, not a passion, to be honest, uh, uh -huh. running a, a data warehouse, or at least being the business owner of one and having to sponsor and, and oversee a whole lot of IT projects. But it did teach me a lot about IT and some of the challenges and frustrations that come with looking after such complex, fast-moving data assets. And really, uh, these things are very expensive, but they're also very valuable, which is why we have them. And so I learned quite a bit through that time about data integration and uh, the different sorts of uses of data and how you can structure things with a particular kind of use in mind. So get kind of locked down to only being able to produce the same kinds of reports each time, but being able to have some capability to do ad hoc analysis. And I think uh, there's always a tension between an IT project manager looking to get sign off and close the thing off and move on yes. versus the business users <laughs> who are thinking, oh, wait, but what if? And hang on, what if I could only do this? Mm. And so how do you get the balance between having a flexible solution, but actually one that gets finished something close to on time and on budget. Yes. So that was a big learning experience to me around, around how to do these. And why was that set up that way that you became the business owner for it, for the data warehouse? Well, I think it's because I was driving most of the value out of it through these sorts of analyses and things that we were doing. And as a result of that, I kind of got under the hood of what was happening with the business logic, probably to a greater extent than my colleagues who were more, I guess, in the sort of consulting type MBA model. And so I could have a technical conversation with our IT colleagues and kind of follow them further down the rabbit hole yes. into the madness of the ETL logic and all of the things that were going on in there. And how was it getting to work across the region? So going to different countries, seeing new companies, obviously helping them face, at least in some ways, sort of similar challenges, but getting a different flavor each yeah. time. How was that experience? You always learn a lot about your home business by going and seeing other businesses. So I always encourage my staff to try and spend time working across different accounts because you will see things, you'll learn things about the way you're doing it at the moment by seeing how other people do it. So I found that to be quite valuable. In terms of the cultural aspects, going and spending some time in Auckland is not exactly an eye-opening experience. Yes. You know, they have all the same shops and things and we kind of speak nearly the same language. So yeah, it was probably less culturally eye-opening. Look, I, I do a lot of business travel at the moment as well. And um, it's very hard to get out of what I call the bubble, which is the airplanes, the airports, the hotels, the taxis, the restaurants, the office buildings. Yes. You really could be anywhere. Anywhere and everywhere in the world these days, the way travel works. So it is quite hard to get out of that and see a little bit of the country that you happen to be in. Yeah, makes sense. And when you first started at Brightstar, how big was the data mining team or data analysis team at the time? 
Me, it was me, yeah. one person. <laughs> so I did it all. I went, so I spoke to customers. I um, came back. I um, wrote the code, queried the database, pulled the charts together, went back to the customers, showed them the results of the analysis. Amazing. So that was, it was a one-man band for a couple of years there. That's excellent because you were the data science unit yeah, during, during right. the full end-to-end. That's outstanding. I like to say full stack, but yeah, sure. Let's go with the unit. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> and in your background before that, what would you say was, if you had to pick something around that, what prepared you to do that? Where do you think most of your preparation came from in order to do the full stack unit? <laughs> I probably have to say the PhD. Yeah part of it. Uh So particularly doing research methods, and as I alluded to earlier, thinking about how do you get answers out of people in a constructive way. So actually thinking about what you're asking, and then what sort of responses you're going to get, and then how you're going to use that. And I also found that the actual work of what I was doing was really about just trying to think through carefully cause and effect. So it might be in the context of um, channel commissions or efficient use of subsidy or consumer behavior around switching between different brands or whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, you're trying to boil down to, if I change X, will Y change? And there's some sort of cause and effect between X and Y. And so having a a way to think about how to do that carefully and surfacing your own biases and then talking to other people about that to get that checked. That's a very deliberative way of thinking. It's a slow thinking technique. And so that doing that PhD helped a lot. But another thing that I did in my undergraduate studies and in my science degree, I did a minor in philosophy, which is some of the great things you can do at Melbourne Uni. And so I did some courses in cognitive philosophy because it kind of touches on computer science and AI in certain areas. Okay. And through that, I went through the discipline of doing formal logic as well and being clear about how you separate your assumptions from your conclusions. Just having that, I guess, a menu or step-by-step guide for how to build a logical argument, that was also very useful. Definitely. Wow, I remember when I was studying, I did not even think of the possibility of adding any sort of philosophy to my degree, even as an elective. Now... I wish I had. How did you come to that decision? Well, to some extent, it was forced on me. So in, again, at the time at Melbourne Uni, you had to do breadth subjects. So they would make you go and choose some subjects from outside of your kind of core areas. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I've always been interested in philosophy. And um, so I picked up some subjects in history and philosophy of science in particular. So I did some stuff on history of astronomy, as well as a couple of different sorts of philosophy subjects. That's awesome. And now for data scientists today, do you recommend doing a a PhD? You can if you like, but it's not a requirement. So Mm -hmm. when I think about the data scientists that I've hired, I think only one of them has a PhD. So it's not a requirement. I see quite a lot out there. Mm. I wouldn't recommend to someone to do a PhD in order to become a data scientist. I think it's a separate thing. For me, as I, my motivation was I had an itch to scratch. It was a personal choice. It wasn't really related to trying to get the job that I ended up doing. It was quite a separate. Yeah. So I, I think as well, you can acquire the skills that you need outside of academia. And the PhD is academic training. It's not necessarily mm. going to give you that breadth skills that you need to be successful. So it can be quite an all-consuming thing. And so I think doing a PhD may also uh, hinder people going and acquiring some of the other skills that they would need to become a data scientist. Very, very 
Good point. And what does your team look like now? What's the, the structure? Sure. So we used to have an analytics, well, I used to run an analytics team, mm-hmm. and we've now narrowed that to being a data science team. So I'm, I'm now the global head of data science. That was a conscious decision. For me, there's a lot of what I call fellow travelers or allied disciplines around data analysis, uh, insights, business intelligence, some of these sorts of areas as well. But we work closely with those teams, but I I don't look to directly manage those teams. The people that work in my team, there's five of us uh, in total, is pure play data scientists. So we're there to deliver modeling and deploy it into the cloud and then have it integrated into some kind of useful decision process. And so that's all that we focus on. Rely on on our colleagues in other areas for our cloud resources or dashboards or uh, customer presentations or whatever other things that we need to do. Great. Very interesting. And could you walk us through a an application or a case study where you the end-to-end process that your team focuses on and what were some of the hurdles along the way things like that sure so one i was thinking uh while you were talking earlier what would be a good one to talk about is we always try and find problems that are really bespoke and unique so it's this, this idea that i mentioned earlier of being the first person to kind of um, look through a data scientist lens at an existing problem and say i think we have an answer to this so the one that we did, it's getting a few years ago now, perhaps four years ago or more, is around the problem of not enough iPhones at the time of the iPhone launch. We don't see it so much now, but you might remember four years, five years ago, people were in sleeping bags yeah. at the front of stores. So this is like a social problem. Human litter strewn in the street um, <laughs> trying to get the latest iPhone. And so the problem that, that our clients, the, the telcos face is, well, how do we allocate these iPhones out to the right stores. We're never going to have enough. There's people, stores are always going to go missing. And most carriers globally, most telcos, there's a lot of the stores are are, um, dealers. So they're independently owned, franchised businesses. These are small business people. And it's enormously important to them that they get enough iPhones to sell, right? Because that's their livelihood. And so it can become quite a heated and emotional debate within a lot of our clients' business. People ringing up, um, shouting and screaming, and there's lots of drama around, you know, we don't have enough iPhones. And then there's the other perspectives as well. So within a typical carrier, you'll find that there's an enterprise channel and they're looking after the big end of town. And they're saying, well, of course, we need iPhones. Yeah. Do you know how much the such and such account is worth to us? It's $50 million, right? Yeah. I mean, we have to give the CEO an iPhone. And then you've got the online channel. And there'll be people inside the, the telco saying, well, the future is online. Your strategy is to move every, all of these sales to online. How are we going to do that if we don't have any iPhones? Yeah. Right? So there's all these different stakeholders. And, and what will often happen is you'll just get bogged down into quite an acrimonious kind of a bitter shouting match between all these different channels or or segments within the carrier. So what uh, makes that problem worse is that Apple is crystal clear to us, to to Brightstar, to our clients and everybody else in the industry. They will push the phones that they have to whichever channel activates them the quickest. So for them, they will look at all of the different carriers in the market, the different retailers, and they'll just shift the volumes around based on who's going to um, see those phones activate in um, iTunes store the quickest. Uh-huh. And obviously that affects their share price, right? Because they want to be able to go out and say, biggest iPhone launch ever, X million sold in the first month. 
what we've got here, and again, this is putting my uh, economics hat on, yeah. we've got a misaligned incentives in the mm. supply chain because the individual dealers, of course, want to get iPhones, but um, they're typically paid on a commission. And the sales commission for mobile phone dealers is based on the plan that you connect to, not the device. So they don't really oh. make any money out of that particular handset you get. It's all about are you on the $30 plan or the $80 plan. Yeah. When they're down to their last iPhone, they have an incentive to hoard mm. the phone, which then slows down the whole supply chain for that whole carrier, which means they get a less allocation from Apple and they become vulnerable to churn. This is the problem. Mm. I was lucky enough to be the first person to look at this with a sort of data science hat on. Okay, here's the answer. What we need to do is develop an algorithm that will allocate these iPhones at the store level. And we will do it based on our clients' preset parameters mm -hmm. and policies, and we'll get that all agreed and locked down. And then we'll have the algorithm decide how to allocate the phones. And you can't lobby the algorithm. You can't yep. bully it. You can't <laughs> offer to take it out to lunch. It's just going to wake up at 6 a.m., have a look at how many phones are in the warehouse, and then make a decision. So people like that idea. It's around automating. It's faster. It takes all of the um, stress and aggression and hostility and all of those negative things away by saying, look, we've, we've already decided things running now. It, it can't be touched. But then the next question was, well, what are the sorts of things that should go into this algorithm yeah. to actually decide? And so we developed some IP that would look at a combination of the store's ability to upsell customers. So if a customer walks in on a $30 plan and walks out on an $80 plan, that store's doing really well. They've, right. they've added a $50 a month um, uh, revenue to that customer. So they kind of get more phones if they do that well. But at the same time, if they sell the phones really quickly, and hence we'll get a greater allocation from Apple next week, they also get rewarded. And the way that we reward them is giving them more phones tomorrow. And the dealers, uh, again, putting my economics hat on, people respond to incentives. So if you make it very clear to them, and we created a portal where they could log in and have a look at what their ranking is, and nice. they'll see relative to other stores that look like them, or that are near them, where are they sitting in the, in the league table? And they will use that information to either sell customers onto higher plan tiers or uh, sell through the phones they've got quicker, and then they'll get a... a greater allocation of iPhones tomorrow. And we can actually see that that changes the dealer's behaviors. They, they start to behave in, a, in the way that is in the interest of our clients, which is the carrier. And so having this algorithm running separately and then linking the incentives for the different participants in the supply chain in a way to align their incentives with each other created a, a really big efficiency. So it meant that the phones were flowing through much faster and the dealers had a much better idea of what they needed to do to secure more phones in the future, which is kind of what they were interested in. So we found that to be quite a successful kind of an innovation in the way that the telco supply chain works. Yeah, that's amazing. And then how did you take that to production? Yeah, so with that type of a solution, we do that sort of thing already in the sense that with some of our clients, we have part of our service contract is that we do work out at that individual store level mm. how many units of different phones and things to push. So we kind of left all of that in place. So there's already systems in place for doing enterprise resource planning and um, warehouse management systems and freight systems and all that sort of machinery. So all that we did was, um, I think the first version we wrote in R and then subsequent ones moved to Python. And then we just uh, created that instance, put it on a virtual machine, and then it was kind of like a loop out of the normal process. So instead of running the usual algorithms for figuring out 
quantities to, to push, which don't work so well in a constrained infantry environment, we use this particular system instead. And so back in those days, there was a lot of CSV files getting passed mm-hmm. from one system to the other. That was how we did it. Yeah, no, that was definitely the way. That's really good. And I just wanted to go back to something that you mentioned towards the start. You said that an engineering degree and a computer science degree Obviously, it doesn't prepare you for the leadership, for the management side of things and, and looking after people. What have been some of the lessons that you've learned on that side for your career? Yeah, that is a good point. I think for me, I've been a manager of people for quite a while, maybe eight years now, seven or eight years. And I've done some training courses through my employer, the usual kind of corporate management training. But what I've realized is that for me, I'm not especially interested in managing people per se, yep. like just as a thing in itself. I really enjoy my job of managing people and I'm, I'm sure whatever I do, I'll continue to do that. But what I've realized is that I like to manage data scientists. Yeah, it's a different kind of a job. Yeah. So I've been on projects where I've been managing up to 30 people. And um, I say that in a way that like, I don't think I could manage like a shoe shop or something like that, right? I don't have that kind of general management skills. It's really around certain kinds of people who mm-hmm. think in a certain way and have certain sorts of expectations. And so I'm quite a narrow manager in that sense. And that's fine. That's what I'm comfortable with yeah. and that's what I tend to keep on doing. And fortunately, there is a need in our society to have people who can manage data scientists. Yes. But I wouldn't say that I could make a leap into kind of general management and start to manage finance people or HR people or other kinds of um, business SMEs just because because of my temperament and I guess sort of background. And what is it about the data science work or the data scientists that make the work of the people resonate with your leadership style? Well, it's probably a couple of things. So first of all, it's around temperament. I know what motivates data scientists, or at least the good ones that, that, that I hire. And it's around curiosity and trying to figure out the answer and uh, wanting to see things getting built and being used. Yes. Because those are things that I can relate to myself. So I'm able to kind of look inward and understand my own motivations and intentions and then make a leap into how the data scientists are thinking. I'm aware that people who work in sales, for example, it's a gross generalization, but they don't get up in the bed and get out of bed in the morning and come to work because they're curious about how the world works, right? They've got other motivations. And so my insights around what makes them tick and how to get the best out of them and how to retain them and keep them happy and, and so on, it's quite different. Yes. Than, than what I know. So that's the first point, I guess, is around my self-awareness and, and insights and being able to apply that to data scientists. And also it's partly around data scientists tend to have a period of academic life for them that's important to them. And they may not all have PhDs, as we talked about earlier, but I think just about all of them have a master's degree and certainly an undergraduate degree or two. So that kind of academic way of working where it's not a top-down command and control, I know everything that's going on, I've got all the answers, you go and do this task and tell me when it's done. That's not how I work and it's very much a, a collegiate type of model. So the team members will joke that, that my job in the team is to go and do the admin and do the do the slides. But there's kind of a, a kernel of truth to that in that we all have roles to fill and I go along and talk about budgets and deal with all of the organizational things that go on. But I do that on behalf of the team, Correct. kind of how I would explain it. That's right. And are there specific that you do or that you bring into the working week or the working month to 
satisfy the curiosity of the data scientist or that stretches them in, in certain ways? Yeah, so we were pretty active in the local meetups here in Melbourne. There's a few different data science meetups, so I encourage the team members to go along to that. And um, where possible, we also get involved with giving talks, guest lectures at some of the universities and things like that as well. You can even just some of the banter, I guess, that happens within the team, uh, different channels and things around um, maybe some geeky jokes or I often find a lot of interesting articles on Hacker News or whatever it might be, and we kind of share those and um, I guess exchange some ideas on some academic papers that might have come across in the course of our work. Great. So I think a lot of those things help people feel that they're in a, an intellectual pursuit rather than just the kind of corporate grind. Good man. That's really good. That's really good. And changing tack a little bit, I wanted to ask you, what are you most proud of that you've done in your career? Probably... I guess in a big picture sense, so not yeah. a particular project, but I'm proud that Brightstar is a global company with, I don't know, seven or 8,000 people in it, headquartered out of Miami with big operations in lots of different countries around the world. And we've grown our data science practice here in Melbourne. There's a, a huge amount of talent here in Melbourne. When I started, there was just me doing some data mining. And as that's grown over the years, the companies kind of recognize that this is a good place to be doing this kind of work. And so as I've created jobs and we're servicing clients from here in Malaysia, in Taiwan, South Korea, New Zealand, uh, the UK, the US, and, and hopefully soon uh, Canada. So wow. it's kind of a something I'm proud of, I guess, that Melbourne can play on an international stage as well. The city of 4 million people with whatever it is, 12 universities or something like that. But there's enough uh, substance and people who are interested in this discipline that we can have a very uh, high performing kind of a data science team based here. Fantastic. That's definitely one to be proud of. Man. That's really good. And what's, what's kept you here or for the 10 years? Sure. I guess it's because the company's reinvented itself so many times uh -huh. in the time that I've been here. And so that has a lot of appeal for me. So that kind of ability to pivot or to transform itself. So that's certainly one factor. The other one, I guess, is it's an opportunity for me to do a global job, but living here. It's not the best location in the world for doing this sort of thing. It's not the best time zone. Um, but um, particularly the last four years when I've been working globally, it is something that Brightstar affords me to be able to do that while keeping my family and other connections here in Melbourne. Very nice. Yeah. But I think also the contribution that you've made and that you have been making over the years has meant that you've been rising and growing with the company and the change in landscape and challenges that, that have come into the, the company's sort of sphere of influence. So I sure. think that's, that's a testament to your work and contribution as well. I was just thinking as well, um, part of having those roots in Melbourne is yeah. also with the Melbourne Business School. So yep. about four years ago, uh, I was approached to help um, with the Center for Business Analytics that was being set up there. And so it was important to me to be able to have that connection back to the university and to maintain that. And so helping to shape the curriculum there and, and advise on, I guess, the operations of the center and types of research that goes on and those sorts of things also been important. And it helps build a pipeline of the talent as well. So yes. we just last year hired our first graduate from that program. She'd been out in industry for a few years and got to that mid-level stage, which is what we need uh, for people to come and work here at Brightstar. And so putting down roots and thinking about the long term means that those kinds of activities kind of have a longer term payoff. But when they do pay off, it's very satisfying. That's right. Well done. That's really good. What excites you most 
in this field or about this field? I guess it's coming back to that idea of saying, you know, talking with clients and stakeholders and really peeling back opportunities to use data science techniques that they hadn't really considered. So there's been many instances in, in my career when you kind of ask the usual consulting question of what keeps you up at night and they give you a list of problems. But then as you get to know that piece of business better, you start to understand that there are things about how that works that people take for granted that it's just always been like that. They don't really think of it as a problem. So when you ask them to nominate their problems, that it doesn't occur to them to offer that. But having known yeah. more and more about how that piece of business works, and having an opportunity to say, well, maybe we could have an algorithm to fix that, yeah. or uh, we could build something that will analyze it and then come up with a recommendation that might be a little bit different to what you've thought about. And then having the people kind of go, oh, wow, that would be amazing if you could do that, but that just sounds like magic. And being able to have that kind of uh, an interaction, whereas before there wasn't a problem because no one knew that a solution existed. Mm -hmm. And then you tell them, well, actually, maybe there is a solution. And they'll say, wow, if you can fix that, that would be fantastic. Those are the, the sort of experiences that I really look for. What gets me out of bed in the morning. That's incredible. That's incredible. Gregory, this has been amazing. I only have one last question for you. And that is, I wanted to ask you for a takeaway, something that you would mm -hmm. like to leave the listeners with, something to think about their career or to face their challenges. What would you say to them? I would say if you have an opportunity to build a model to do something useful for somebody else, and then you give it back to them and you say, here it is, make sure that you follow up with them mm. to make sure that that thing is being used. So if you've created a, a forecast or a prediction algorithm or some kind, and then you're expecting them to use it in a web app or an Excel or whatever it might be, call them up and every day for two weeks and find out if they're using it and make sure that they actually do adopt it. And if they've got reasons why they're not using it, fix it there and then on the spot. That's the way to make sure that your models and whatever it is, you, your algorithms you're coming up with actually get embedded into a workflow. And, and then that's when they really get used and create value. And so often you see that that last step doesn't happen. And that's the big loss when someone's done a great model, but it never gets to see the light of day. That's so true. Mate, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and your wisdom and your lessons learned. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.